Scripture this morning is in the book of Genesis, continuing our study in the first book of the Bible, Genesis chapter 3, verses 20 through 24. One thing I need to say about Brandon's baptism, Mark May isn't here. Um, he, had, he and Gabe had a baby this week, and so it's really uh, a celebration that, that the Mays are having at home, but Mark May was very instrumental. Uh, he spent many long Wednesday nights talking with Brandon, answering his questions, and so it's, um, I hope you got to see that on the live stream. Uh, but, but, but Mark, thank you for your um, commitment to Brandon and to discipling people in this church. Many of you have been a part of that, and this is the fruit of it. We get to walk into the kingdom together. Let's, let's pray. I'm, rather, let's read God's word, then we'll pray. I'm trying not to cry. <laughs> Genesis 3.20. The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. And the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man. And at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim. And a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Let's pray. Lord, we can praise you knowing that you have opened the way to the tree of life in Christ. Praise you, Lord, that you have welcomed many of us into eternal life in Christ because of his work for us your mercy for us. Lord, as we look at your word this morning, I pray that you would show us Christ here in what appears to be horrendous judgment. Give us eyes of faith and hope in Christ. In Christ's name, amen. You may be seated. Well, the, the, uh, the two ordinances that Jesus has given us are both beautiful displays of the nature and character of God himself. We have the Lord's Supper that we will partake in next week together. And in the Lord's Supper, we have the love of God and the justice of God. God making a a new covenant with his people through the death of his son. Through the death of his son, a covenant with his people, the love, the justice of God. We see this in, in baptism as well. Baptism is similar in that Baptism is an echo of the story of redemption. If you remember, as we were looking at uh, Genesis 1 just a few months ago, the waters of chaos covered the earth, and God brought forth life and order out of the water. We'll see in a few weeks, the waters will cover the earth again in the judgment of the flood. And what happens there? God protects Noah and his family through the waters of judgment and brings them into new life. Later, Israel is redeemed out of Egypt through the water. And that same water that they walked through in redemption is used to judge and condemn Pharaoh and his army. In baptism, through immersion, we identify with Christ and so go under the waters of judgment into death with him. 
And because Christ is the only one who has ever survived the judgment of death, if we are in him like Noah was in the ark, if we are in Christ, then we too survive the waters of judgment. We are brought through death into new creation life. God's mercy and his judgment are both seen in baptism. In his mercy, God brings his people through the waters of his own judgment. In the judgments of God, all throughout Scripture, the covenant love of God and the mercy of God are always on display. Always, all throughout the Bible. From Genesis to Revelation, God's mercy and God's steadfast love are always seen in his judgments. And if you're thinking this, let me correct it because I used to think this way. It's not that God is sometimes just and sometimes merciful. No, God is always fully God, perfect in his holiness, perfect in his righteousness, perfect in his merciful love, and those attributes are inseparable because they are one and the same. They are God himself. We've been seeing this as we've studied Genesis, haven't we? In God's judgment of the serpent in Genesis 3.15, God restores creation order. He rightfully returns the serpent to its place as a beast of the field, ruled over by humanity, and then he promises a savior who will come through the woman will crush the serpent and all of his works. And in that one act, God shows the righteous judgment of the serpent and mercy towards humanity. In the judgment of the woman that we studied the week after that, there was the the promise of pain and childbirth. But as the rest of Scripture reveals, the trials of child-rearing will turn the hearts of God's chosen women to trust in the Lord. This is so much the case that when the Apostle Paul reflects on this in in 1 Timothy, he makes the assertion that women are saved through childbirth. Certainly, he doesn't mean that having babies is what saves you, but rather the pain endured in raising up children is meant to teach elect mothers to trust in the Lord. Again, judgment from God, yes, but judgment that points forward to salvation, In the judgment of the man that we saw a couple weeks ago, there was the promise of pain in subduing the earth. The earth is cursed because of man's sin. Work will be toilsome and filled with failure and pain. But it isn't pointless. Yet again, God is teaching humanity that we must depend on him. We must trust in him in order to eat and live. We must learn to pray as Jesus prayed, give us this Lord our daily bread. And built into the judgment of the man was the hope of God's grace. God's grace that he would provide for humanity, that he would sustain his people. Though they would face death, God would be the source of life, and one day he would provide for us bread from heaven that would give us eternal life. Again, judgment from God but judgment that points to God's grace and his mercy and salvation. And we will see that in our text this morning as well. 
This, this theme continues. When God acts in judgment, his loving mercy and his holiness are both on display. When God acts in judgment, this is the theme this morning. When God acts in judgment, his loving mercy and his holiness are on display. Well, the final section of chapter 3 begins here in in verse 20. When Adam responds to God's judgments with faith. Look at verse 20 with me. The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. And when Adam renames his wife mother of all living, we say Eve, they say mother of all living. That's what Eve means. Adam is showing that even before there there are any children born, He believes that what God had said in the judgments is true. There will be children to come. And that's what faith is, isn't it? Believing that what God says is true. Abraham was saved by faith. He believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Adam here believes God. And what again did God say that Adam believes? We saw it in Genesis 3.15. Through the judgment of the serpent, God promises that the woman would have an offspring who would crush the serpent. In Genesis 3.16, God promises that there would be pain and toil in childbirth. Though every human life after Adam will return to the dust, there is hope that there will be children to come. There's hope. That these children would come from the man and the woman and one offspring in particular would destroy the serpent and the work of the serpent. Adam has faith in that promise. And Adam's faith is what leads him to declare his wife will be the mother of all living. Here's what I want you to see here. Adam's faith comes as a result of hearing God's word. Romans 10, 17 says, faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. God speaks, Adam hears, Adam believes, and he acts. Even though God's word meant judgment for Adam. Right? Think about it. God told Adam that the earth was cursed, that he would work to survive, and then he would die. That's judgment. But God's judgment also meant the hope of the promise. So the very first thing that Adam does after God speaks is to respond to God in faith in that promise. Adam doesn't moan and cry, does he? He doesn't say, well, why me? What, can I, what, what have I done to deserve this, God? What can I do to undo this judgment, God? He doesn't. He doesn't look at the prospect of years of labor. And, and as we'll see, it's hundreds of years. He doesn't look at that and then argue with God and say, it's not fair. He doesn't negotiate with God. He simply accepts God's word as authoritative and final and true. He's saying if all that God says is authoritative and final and true, then because of what God has decreed, my wife will be the mother of all living. And the, the effect of this The effect of this, I think, is more outstanding for those who speak Hebrew than it is for us English speakers. For us, she's Eve, right? When we think of Eve, we we think of maybe a painting that you've seen with her on it. Think of maybe someone 
you know whose name is Eve or Eva? Or, or we think of the shortened form of, of the word for evening? But for Hebrew speakers, whenever they hear the name Eve, they are reminded God had mercy on the first couple so that children could be born. And those children's children could be born on down the line, leading to the offspring of the promise. That is all built into her name. Adam believed the promise, and he renamed his wife in accordance with God's promise. Let me just ask you before we move on, is faith your response to God's word? When you hear God's word, and you're reading scripture, or you, you hear the gospel proclaimed to you, do you think this is authoritative and final and true? Or do you look for you loopholes? Do you question it? When you, when you hear in the word of God, you are a sinner condemned in your sin, and your only hope of salvation is Jesus Christ. That's God's word. That's the gospel. What, what, what's your response to that? Is it faith? Do you believe God's word? Or do you respond in disbelief and anger towards God? Or do you double down with more confidence in yourself? This may be the only time that I ever tell you to follow Adam's example. But Adam's acceptance of God's word was the beginning of redemption. So hear God's word with faith. Accept it as authoritative and true, and you will be on the way of redemption. Well, in response to Adam's renewed faith, God renews his covenant with Adam and Eve. We see this in verse 21. Look at verse 21 with me. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. And you say, where are you seeing covenant here, Dustin? <laughs> it's a good question. This little, this little verse is just packed full of Old Testament significance. God is, is more than a, a tanner and a tailor here. The, the Lord God, and look at the, the word that Moses uses for us, verse 21, and the Lord God. The Lord God, that's the covenant name for God. Remember, we talked about this a few weeks ago. And when we see that name for God, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, when we see that, we should, we should cue in to how the Lord describes himself in Exodus. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. We sing here in the name of God, he is just, he is righteous, he is gracious, he is merciful, he is covenant-making, he is the covenant-keeping God, and he is the one who makes these garments of animal skins for the man and woman, and he is the one who clothes them. This is an act of God's sovereign grace. The Lord did not have to do this. He could have left Adam and Eve in the clothes that they had made for themselves. Remember, Adam and his wife had already made their own garments of fig leaves. God did not have to make new clothes for them. He could have left them in their shame. 
He did not have to clothe them, but God chose to clothe them. God saw that the the man-made clothes were deficient. Even with those fig leaves on, Adam knew his own nakedness, and he hid from God in his shame. Do you remember that? He was hiding from God with his man-made clothes on. God sees that and sees what you do is deficient. What you do is insufficient. What I can do for you will cover your shame. So in response, according to God's mercy, God chose to clothe the man and the woman and to cover their shame. What the woman and the man could not do on their own, God did for them. What riches of kindness he lavished on them. But here's the thing. This clothing from God is costly. It required the death of an animal. God did not go to the store to purchase these skins. He didn't conjure the skins. This isn't vegan leather. An animal had to die. A sacrifice had to be made. A life had to be taken in order to make these garments that would cover the shame of Adam and Eve. We don't, this isn't clearly stated in the text, is it? Moses does not say here explicitly, and God himself sacrificed an animal and used the skins to cover the shame of the man and woman. It's not said to us, but it is shown to us. Similar to the picture of the gospel we have in the Lord's Supper or in baptism, the image of what is portrayed tells the story. So so if you were to imagine a storyline of this scene There would be an animal, like a cow or a sheep or a goat, being killed in the first scene. And then the second scene would show their skins being removed from their bodies. And then in the third frame, you'd see the skins being tanned and dried on a rack. And then the skins being sewn into clothing. Then the clothing being fitted onto Adam and Eve. And then in the last scene, in that last scene, somewhere in the background, behind Adam and Eve and their new clothes you would see a dried-up pile of bones, the skeletons of the animals slaughtered to make the clothing for these people. Blood had to be shed to cover the sin and the shame of Adam and Eve. You remember that verse that we talked about a lot in Matthew, 1 Corinthians 15.3? For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. This is one of those scriptures. Do you remember how on the road to Emmaus in Luke 24, Jesus said to to his friends, Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses, what's Moses? Genesis Beginning with Genesis and all the prophets, he interpreted to them and all the scriptures the things concerning himself. This is one of those passages that we cannot help but to see Jesus Christ in. God sacrifices a life to cover the sin and shame of his people. You can't miss Christ there, can you? This most certainly foreshadows Christ's sacrifice for us. And here's the similarity between the animals killed for Adam and Eve and the Son of God killed for you and me. When Jesus 
was sacrificed to cover our sin and shame, God clothed us with Jesus Christ. That's what Colossians is about. Now now that you have been united to Christ through faith, you are to put off your old self, put off your old clothing. That's the language Paul's using. Put on Christ. And the language Paul uses is, is clothing language. The verb he uses for put on, in Greek, it is exclusively used for getting dressed. Look at Colossians 3.10. So put on the new self. That means clothe yourself, clothe yourself with the new self, with Christ. That self is being renewed in knowledge after the image of the creator. We Christians are clothed in Jesus' skins. And this is what that looks like. It looks like Jesus' righteousness. Colossians 3.12. Put on then as God's chosen ones. There's a put on. Get yourself dressed in Jesus as, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these things, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which you were called in one body. And be thankful. To be clothed with Christ means two things. Vertically, it means this. Our relationship to God is, is whole. Because being clothed with Christ means that we have the forgiveness of Christ, we have the justification of Christ, and we have acceptance before God. Horizontally, between one another, we are to appear to Christ, as Christ to one another. That means we act like Christ. Because we're clothed in His righteousness and His good deeds. We act like Him. We show compassion to one another. We show humility towards one another and love and kindness and patience. And we forgive one another. And we live in thankfulness. And if you keep going in Colossians, we sing to one another. The word of Christ dwells in us and we sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. We are speaking the word of Christ acting like Christ, loving like Christ for one another because we have been clothed by God with Christ. That's your clothing. Let's get back to Adam and Eve's clothing. Something else that would be very much on the surface for the Hebrew readers of Genesis 3 would be the fact that God himself clothed Adam and Eve with these garments. He's the one that puts the garments on. He's the, God is the one that dresses them. He didn't give them the clothes, and they put them on. No, God makes the garments, and he clothes them. God himself covered their nakedness. And what we're going to see is that covering of nakedness with a garment is marriage language. It's covenant language. Look with me at Ezekiel 16. I'll put it on the screen. Ezekiel 16 Verses 4 through 11. And as for your birth, this is God speaking to Israel. As for your birth, on the day you were born, your cord was not cut, nor were you washed with water to cleanse you, nor rubbed with salt, nor wrapped in swaddling cloths. No eye pitied you to do any of these things to you out of compassion for you, but you were cast out on the open field 
for you were aboard on the day that you were born. And the picture here that Ezekiel is drawing for us is of an unwanted baby girl. We this week as Christians and Americans celebrate Roe being overturned by the mercy of God. But we need to remember that infanticide is not a new phenomenon. Historically, cultures around the world have always had ways of getting rid of their unwanted children, particularly their little girls. Little girls have always borne the brunt of the abortion scourge. In Israel, God says, here in Ezekiel, God says, Israel was like one of those, one of those unwanted baby girls, an inconvenience to her parents, left out by the roadside to die. But God sees the child. And in verse 6, he says, And when I passed by you and saw you wallowing in your blood, I said to you in your blood, Live. I said to you in your blood, Live. I made you flourish like a plant of the field, and you grew up and became tall and arrived at full adornment. Your breasts were formed and your hair had grown, yet you were naked and bare. When I passed by you again and saw you, behold, you were at the age for love. And look at this. And I spread the corner of my garment over you and covered your nakedness. That echoes Genesis 3, doesn't it? I made my vow to you and entered into a covenant with you, declares the Lord God, and you became mine. Then I bathed you with water and washed off your blood from you and anointed you with oil. I clothed you also with embroidered cloth and shod you with fine leather. I wrapped you in fine linen and covered you with silk, and I adorned you with ornaments, put bracelets on your wrists and a chain on your neck. So in, in Israel, anyone reading Genesis 3 would have known this, in Israel, the practice of covering a woman with the corner of your garment was a way of claiming her as your wife. This, this, for those of you who are thinking about high school and putting your letterman's jacket around someone, that's not the same thing. That's not what this is about. That the garment sharing here is a part of the wedding ceremony. It's roughly, roughly equivalent to our ring exchange in our wedding ceremonies. So just as a groom today puts a ring on his bride's finger and vows a covenant with her, in an Israelite wedding, the garment around her had the same significance. The garment signified that he would be the one to keep her. He would be the one to protect her. That's what's happening in Ezekiel. God has covered this abandoned orphan with his garment and made her his queen. And then after God has entered into covenant relationship with Israel, then he washes her. That order is not insignificant, okay? It points to Christ. Washing the blood off this woman is symbolic of washing the death off of her. The washing of Israel is looking forward to Christ washing the church, presenting her to himself without blot or or wrinkle or any such thing. Christ will wash away the church's sin. In Ezekiel, God is symbolically washing off Israel's sin so she can be in union with him. He anoints her with oil. He clothes her with leather. So Ezekiel 16 is about God choosing Israel as his own, adorning Israel, making her fit to be his queen. This is election language. This is covenant language. What I want you to see here is that anyone reading Genesis 3 would see that God is doing the same thing with Adam and Eve. 
they would have seen God's act of clothing Adam and Eve as symbolic of reestablishing his covenant relationship with them. They broke covenant. He's reestablishing it. He's choosing them to again be his representatives. He's covenanting with them, even in their nakedness, even in their shame. God is clothing them in leather garments, saying, you belong to me. As he would later say to Israel, you belong to me. As he has said to you who are in Christ, you belong to me. Well, when God does this for Adam and Eve, he's showing them they will continue to be a part of his plan of redemption. Despite their sin, despite their rebellion, God is merciful toward them. He's merciful toward them. Ultimately, that's what this clothing is. That's who God is. His mercy is greater than our sin. He is a forgiving God. So for those of you who think that you are too far gone, God's mercy is more. This man and woman have rebelled against God in ways that I don't think we can even comprehend. I don't think we can understand the depth of their rebellion against God. They listened to the voice of the enemy of God. They were convinced in their hearts that God was not to be trusted. They they disobeyed the only commandment that they had been given. They attempted to become gods in themselves. They brought death to you and me, curses to the earth, and yet God has mercy on them. He's not finished with them. He covers their shame. He restores them into relationship with him. Will God not also do this for you? Do you think that there is anything possibly worse than Adam's sin? Adultery? No. Abortion? No. Addiction? No. If you you think that somehow God could never cover your shame because your sin is too great, you don't know him. You don't know the covenant-making, covenant-keeping, merciful love of God who forgives. The nature and character of God has not changed since Genesis 3. God is still the God who forgives, and we know that better now than Adam ever did. In Christ, we have an even greater revelation of the love and the mercy of God. Greater than what Adam saw in those animal skins. In Christ, we have a a covering of our sin and shame that is greater than what God made for Adam. In Christ, we have the covering of God himself. But friend, if you do not yet know the love and the mercy of God, he's offering his forgiveness today. Receive his forgiveness today. Submit to Christ's kingship today. Live for his glory forever. Well, it seems like I keep going from Genesis 3 to Jesus and back to Genesis 3 to Jesus. It's because I can't help it. Jesus is all over Genesis. God has written Jesus here into the very beginning so that we would have more confidence that he is the Christ when we look back and read the whole story. 
But as you're reading the Bible, before you can get from Genesis 3 to Christ, you have to understand the reason why Christ had to come. And that's what we see here in these next few verses. Then the Lord God said, Genesis 3.22, Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. He's eaten of the tree. He disobeyed God. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the God sent him out of the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man. And at the east of the garden, he placed a cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. This is strong language. In verse 23, God sent the man out of the garden. In verse 24, God drove out the man. This is banishment language. This is the same language that we'll see later on with Abraham and Hagar. Drove out from the garden, drove, driven out from, the, from that place of protection into the wilderness. We saw God's mercy very clearly displayed for Adam, didn't we, just now? Verses 22 and 23, or uh, 20 and 21. But now, this is the judgment. This is the judgment of God toward Adam. No longer can sinful man be in God's holy dwelling place. That's what the garden is. This here is the beginning of the exile of humanity. We talked a lot about the exile when we were studying Matthew together. This is the beginning. The separation of humanity from the dwelling place of God. God has plans for Adam and Eve that's made clear here. They will be the root from which the promise will come. But in their sin, because of their sin, they cannot remain in the garden of God's presence. Because of Adam's sin, he is marked for death. Therefore, he cannot eat of the tree of life. And so it's not just banishment, is it? It's banishment with the threat of certain death should you return. The tree of life and the dwelling place of God are now guarded By this cherubim, that's a word we haven't seen yet in Genesis, cherubim with a flaming sword. Who are or what are cherubim? Well, as you read the rest of the Bible, you don't see much of this at the beginning of Genesis, but as you read the rest of the Bible, you'll find that cherubim are some sort of heavenly creatures, and they're always, always, always near the throne of God. So you can't get to God. Here's the, the if you we're gonna reduce this to a, a sentence. You cannot get near the throne of God without meeting a cherubim. They're always there. There are cherubim around God's heavenly throne in Psalms. They are they are there around God's heavenly throne in Ezekiel. They are around God's heavenly throne in Revelation. And there are cherubim guarding the holy of holies of the tabernacle in Exodus. In fact, in the tabernacle, when the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies, he would have to go through a curtain embroidered with cherubim. And then as he went before the Ark of the Covenant, God would speak from between the two statues of cherubim that were on top of the Ark. You can't get to God's throne room in heaven without going through cherubim. But to go through the cherubim means certain death. The way 
is guarded by flaming swords. What this tells us is that if any man is to go back into the dwelling place of God, he must die to get there. Old Testament scholar Meredith Klein puts it like this. He says, in the hour that God drove man into exile, it was indicated that any future return to God's dwelling place and the tree of life, look at this, must involve a passage through the flaming sword of God's judgment. So that's the situation that humanity finds themselves in from Adam and Eve all the way through the Old Testament. Separated from God. God has chosen for himself a people who will be his instruments. They've been shown God's mercy. They've been chosen by God to spread his glory, but their relationship to God is imperfect. There's a barrier. There's separation between God and his people. There's the constant threat, judgment. God's people cannot be in his presence. And the presence of God in that holy place is separated from the cursed earth. But living under the judgment of God has built into it, all throughout the Old Testament, hope of the coming Messiah. The the hope of God's people throughout the Old Testament is that one day, one day there would come a champion who would enter into the dwelling place of God. The Old Covenant hope was that there would be one who could go through the judgment of the flaming swords and open up access to the tree of life. And that really is the story of the Bible. That is the story of redemption. God himself sends his own son to be the champion for us. Jesus comes, shows us he's the promised Christ. All the promises of the Old Testament, all of the prophecies of the coming king are fulfilled in Christ. He takes on the curse, the judgment of death for us. And with his own perfect sacrifice, Hebrews 9, right? Hebrews 9, he enters into the dwelling place of God and makes atonement for our sin. That's Christianity. That's it. That's where we are now. Already, our Messiah has entered into God's throne room. Already, he has sent the Spirit of God to dwell with us, in us, together here. What we're waiting for now, what what has not happened yet, is the day when Christ returns and brings the dwelling place of God, Eden, back to earth, to the whole earth. We're waiting for that moment in Revelation eleven fifteen when all is complete. This is, this is what the, after the seventh angel blows his trumpet. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdom of the world, where we live, has become the kingdom of our Lord and his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. The, Lord become, the world becomes Eden. And then the kingdom of heaven descends, and what was available to Adam and Eve in the garden is the centerpiece of that descending heavenly city. Look at Revelation 22. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, 
the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed. That means the earth is no longer cursed. Nothing is cursed. There's no death anymore. But the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it. And the servants, His servants, will worship Him. That's what we're looking forward to now. What was lost in Genesis 3 is regained by the champion, by our Christ. That's what we look forward to with faith. That's what the Christian life is. Living by the Spirit of Christ now, anticipating with hope the day when the kingdom of the world is totally and completely Christ's kingdom, and we enjoy the full benefits of his reign, eternal life from the tree of life. Amen? Let's praise him. Lord, we thank you that you have sent the Christ. <laughs> 